Does lostness bother you? Does lostness bother you? A study recently put out by the church at Brook Hills says that 58% of the state of Alabama is unchurched. 58%. Now, let me also say that, that we are the most reached state. We are the most reached state in all of the union, and yet 58% of the people in our home state are without the gospel, are without hope. That would mean that there are 2.8 million people, 2.8 Alabamians that are without Christ. If that exact percentage held true for Calhoun County, it would mean that here in Calhoun County, Alabama, are 66,000 people without the gospel. We have somehow deceived ourselves into believing that everywhere, everybody that lives where we live knows the gospel. That everybody that lives where we live, that has been inside of a church, knows the gospel. And we have let ourselves off of the responsibility of taking it to them as we take it to the ends of the earth. But brothers and sisters, let me, have, let me caution you with urgency. That within a 30 minute drive of this church are over 60,000 people that need Jesus. And that's not counting Cleburne County. And that's not counting Randolph County. And that's not counting Clay County. And that's not counting Talladega County. All within a short drive of us. Does lostness bother you? Let me remind you who these 60,000 people are. They are your teammates on the football field. They are your co-workers. They are your bosses. They are your best friends. They are people that sit at your dinner table with you every night. This week, what did you do to push back the lostness? This week, what did you do to help resolve the lostness in our state? What did you do to help resolve the lostness in your own home? What did you do to resolve the lostness in your high school and in your workplace? Did the children at your dinner table hear the gospel one time this week? Do the people at school see in you any resemblance of Christ at all? Did those that you work with, were they more likely to come to Jesus this week because you were there? Brothers and sisters, we are salt and light. One of the things that I hear most about our church when I meet other pastors and when I meet our um, people at the state is people will always commend us on being a missions church. They'll say, you are a pastor of a missions church, and, I, and that does make me proud. And that is something I'm incredibly thankful for, that we have a reputation as being a church that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I believe that J.D. Payne is right when he says that there is something missionally malignant about a church that will go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, but not across the street. Calhoun County is our responsibility. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. We will finish Matthew 9 this week. In Matthew 9, we'll begin in verse 35. 
God's word says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to verse 35 and we come to this final section of chapter 9, we should see this as a sort of summary for all of chapters 8 and 9, maybe even chapters 5 through 9, where, he is, where Jesus is summarizing everything that's, ha- that, that's happened. And he's summarized it, essentially, or Matthew has summarized it essentially by telling us two things. Number one, the authority of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus, and that he has healed, he has worked, he has taught, he has done all of these things. And then number two, the responsibility of his disciples. Remember, throughout chapters 8 and 9, all of the Sermon on the Mount have been aimed at Jesus' disciples, right? So you have a series of miracles, teaching on discipleship. A series of miracles, teaching on discipleship. And so Matthew sums all of it up as saying, Jesus is incredibly sufficient, Jesus is in complete authority, and the disciples are responsible to go. The disciples are responsible to be laborers. Well, what I want to do is I want to start this morning by looking at verse 36 first, and then we're going to come back to verse 35. So let's read verse 36 again together, and it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. It says there that when Jesus sees the crowd, the the multitude of people that have been following him. And at this stage in Jesus' ministry, the crowd is getting larger and larger and larger. He has performed such incredible miracles. He has spoken with such authority that everyone is drawn to the things that Jesus is doing. So these large crowds are following after Jesus. And so it says that Jesus looks across the crowd, scans the crowd, and as he sees them, he is filled with compassion for them. Now, compassion is a weak translation there. And the reason that it's translated as compassion is it's really just the closest that we can get. There is no English equivalent that matches the Greek word that's used there. The word that is used there that is translated compassion means literally to have your guts turned inside out. It means to be burdened deep down in your belly. It means that there is a movement inside of you, a a pressing on your organs. It's it's when your stomach is emptied out and you lose it all together and yet it is filled with acid and you can feel it beginning to burn inside of you. Speaking of a burden, of a brokenness. That Jesus looks out over the crowd that day and he sees their helplessness. He sees how harassed they are. He sees how damaged they are. And he is moved inwardly deeply. See, there's no doubt that after, as Jesus looked over the crowd, there was great diversity among it that day. That there in the crowd would have been old men who wore the hardships of their life in the wrinkles on their face. There would have been, no doubt, young children pulling at the pants of their mother. There would have been impatient teenagers and lonely mothers-to-be. And though as different as they appeared to be, as diverse as the crowd must have seemed, in the bedrock of their souls, they were all the same. They were all languishing. They were all harassed. They were all distressed. 
They were all helpless. They were all exhausted for try, after trying to be good enough and never figuring it out. So Jesus saw them and he was deeply troubled. He saw them and he was profoundly distressed himself, burdened for the people that were coming after him. Let me ask you this morning, does lostness bother you? Are you disturbed by the lostness in our community? Are you disturbed by the lostness that surrounds you at work? Are you disturbed by the helplessness that lives in your own house? Are you disturbed by the harassment of emptiness and the harassment of spiritual death that people, 60,000 plus across our own county, are experiencing in this very moment? Are you disturbed? It wouldn't seem so. As most Christians have not shared the gospel one time in the last five years. As most Christians have not brought a single person to the gospel in their entire Christian life. We have the hope. They have the need. Let us see the crowd, not in their diversity, but in their sameness. That in the bedrock of their souls, they need the same answer that we did. The gospel. Now, I don't think Jesus just has in mind a burden here, though. He's going beyond burden, beyond compassion, and he's speaking of something broader. And I say that because of the phrase that he ends verse 36 with. He sees them, and being moved with compassion, he says what about them? He says they are helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That he sees these men, he sees these women, he sees these children, and Jesus looking at them says, these people are vulnerable. These people are weak. These people are starving. These people are helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now Jesus was always incredibly precise with his language. And Matthew incredibly precise with his uh, writing of, his, of Jesus' language. And so Jesus wrote, said that phrase. Matthew records that phrase very intentionally. Because we're going beyond the burden of Jesus into the mission of Jesus. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. That's to the left. Now, Ezekiel may not be one that you've read a whole lot, so take, take, take a second. It's a big book, though, so that, that helps. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the ways that God would describe his people when they were unfaithful, one of the things that they would experience is God would say, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. I'm going to scatter you among the lands, and there you will live as a sheep without a shepherd. In other words, God, remember, had intended to allow the nation of Israel to, to especially know his provision. To especially know the depths of his protection, the riches of his provision, the goodness of his relationship. But as they were unfaithful, the shepherd would withdraw himself from them. He would withdraw his provision. He would withdraw his protection. He would withdraw his very presence. And the people would be scattered. Well, just as it was in Jesus' day, in Ezekiel... The religious leaders were at the forefront of the scattering. And so God, speaking in rebuke of the priests of that day, and speaking in the future of a soon coming deliverance, says these words. We'll begin in Ezekiel 34, begin in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue from them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weakened, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. You hear what God is saying? My people have been scattered. They've lived lives unfaithful. They have lived lives in sin. Their religious leaders aren't shepherds, they're wolves, leading them further into being scattered. But I will come after them. I will come as the shepherd and I will deliver them from their sin. I will bring them in from their helplessness. I will go after them since they don't come after me. I will feed them. I will protect them. So understand what Jesus is saying that day in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus looks out over the crowd and he says they are wandering as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is looking back at them and saying that's why I came. That's why I came. I came to be the shepherd. I came because they are wandering helplessly. They are wandering uh, in harassment. And I have come to resolve them. I am God coming to them to deliver them. See, as Jesus looked over the crowd that day, he saw the hurt in their faces, the pain in their lives, the emptiness in their souls. And you know what he said? I want to be your shepherd. I want to be your shepherd. He didn't come here out of obligation. He didn't come here because he was forced to. He came here on mission, seeking out the sheep because he wants to be our shepherd. This morning, there is no better news than I can give you than that. Is that you are walking through your life blindly. You are going through your life helplessly. And Jesus is looking into you with the compassion of a Savior and saying, I want to be your shepherd. It gets to the very mission of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus will tell a parable called the parable of the lost sheep. And in that parable, Jesus says every single time, the shepherd will leave the 99 to go after the one. That if one sheep go, breaks away from the flock and goes away and is in harm's way and is vulnerable and is uncared for, that every single time, the shepherd will leave the 99 and pursue the one. This is what Jesus does. Jesus pursues all of the ones. Jesus pursued you when you were one of the ones. Jesus is still pursuing some of you who are the ones. Jesus is leaving heaven. He is leaving the 99, pursuing the ones here on earth that are helpless, that are like sheep without a shepherd. It's a humbling thought to think that the God of the universe would bring himself so low as to pursue us, isn't it? It's a humbling thought to think that the God that plans to 
bless us forever, as we talked about, and that we would search his riches and never find the bottom of it, that he would empty himself of all of that and come after us and pursue us as the one, as the one sheep broken away for whom he wants to be the shepherd. But this morning, that's the news I have for you. For some of you, God has been pursuing you for a long time. He's been pursuing you because you couldn't pursue him. Romans 3 says that none are good, that none of us are seeking God. None of us are looking for God. None of us are pursuing God. And so he had to come after you. And so perhaps you've sat in sermons like this and you've felt the conviction of the Spirit in your life and you know that you're in your sin and you know that God would have you to be, come to him and be forgiven. And so he has drawn you and he has convicted you and yet over and over and over you have hardened your heart to him. Some of you are believers. There was a moment in your life, there's been a time in your life, perhaps even most of your life, that you have lived a life faithful to Christ, honoring him. You repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ. But it's been a long time since you took a step forward in godliness. It's been a long time since you were pursuing godliness in your life. It's been a long time, in fact, you've, you've withdrawn yourself, you've, you've pulled back. Used to you serve faithfully, now you just come occasionally. And you've, you've pulled back, right? Used to you, be, you would be in the word, but now you just come and hear the word sometimes. Used to you hungered and thirsted for God. You wanted to know him with enthusiasm and with delight and with passion. But now it's just more of motions that you're going through and you've pulled back. Here's my exhortation to both of you. Whether you are the lost that has never been found or you are the Christian that has pulled back, stop running away from the pursuit of God. Stop running away from the pursuit of God. God has been coming after you. God has been pursuing you. He himself the shepherd, you the lost sheep, he left the 99 to come after you. And he's coming and he's coming and he's coming. Stop running away from the pursuit of God. James 4, 8 says that if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. You know why that is? Because if you will turn around in your life and run after God, what you will find is that God is already running after you and you'll run slap into the middle of him. This morning, it very well may be that God is using this sermon in your life as part of his pursuit of you. And so if you're in your sin and he's convicting you and he's drawing you and he's asking you to come and repent of your sin and be forgiven, come this morning. Stop running away from his pursuit. If this morning you were a Christian and you were withdrawn from, from, uh, from pursuing godliness and withdrawn from serving in the church and withdrawn from, from growing in Christ, stop running and pursue Christ. Now I think that takes us back to verse 35. So we saw the burden of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, right? The, the burden, he sees the lostness and he's, he's moved inside. The, the mission that he is the good shepherd that has come after all of the ones. But I think what we see in verse 35 is the intensity with which Jesus comes to accomplish his mission. We see the intensity with which Jesus intends to resolve his burden. The intensity with which Jesus pursues after all 
of his languishing sheep. Verse 35 says, as Jesus and Jesus went throughout all the circles, all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That it says that as Jesus goes, he's going from every town into every city. And he's proclaiming the good news, saying, the kingdom has come. You don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to be lost anymore. The shepherd has come for you. The kingdom of God has come by his mercy to deliver you. And he's walking and he's going. And what I want us to see here is what a tireless worker Jesus is. I don't know that we think about Jesus this way very often. But what we should see here is that Jesus, flowing out of his burden, flowing out of his mission, to the accomplishment of his mission, is a tireless, intense, urgent worker. Jesus is not some pretty boy with soft hands sitting in a soft leather chair at work in an office somewhere. Jesus is walking everywhere that he goes. You realize that? Maybe occasionally he could ride a donkey, but that's not a lot of fun either. If Jesus were just to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem, he would have to walk nearly 70 miles. That would be the equivalent of us walking from here to UAB. And as Jesus is walking, let me just remind you, he ain't wearing Nikes, all right? He don't even have, he don't even have Crocs. He's got like leather strapped onto his feet. And as he's going, people are coming. And Jesus is always stopping. And Jesus is always bringing healing. And Jesus is always ministering. As he would come through towns, he would go into the synagogues. And he would teach. And he would preach. And he would share the good news. So if he was going from Nazareth to Jerusalem, let me just say, he wasn't just making a beeline. This was a long trip. Often, he tell, we've, we know in the scriptures that he is without a place to lay down his head. That he's living homeless. That he very often likely goes hungry. As he goes, it says that he's preaching and teaching. Now, some of y'all are going to roll your eyes. Let me just say, that's hard work. There's been a study done that says that to preach a 30-minute sermon take, puts the same amount of stress and distress on the body and on the mind as eight hours of manual labor. Now, I don't know if that's true. But what I do know is when I'm finished, I am tired. I am incredibly tired. To be engaged in 40 minutes of spiritual warfare, face to face with the enemy, trying to speak to the hearts of people, trying to make sure you, as you speak to the hearts of people that you are not dishonoring the word of God or dishonoring God himself as though God is sitting in the audience. Let me tell you, it's gut-wrenching work. And that doesn't even get to the 15 or 20 hours of preparation that perhaps went into Jesus' sermons. We think that Jesus just had the scriptures by osmosis, but the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. It talks about him growing in stature and growing in wisdom. The reason that Jesus could quote extensively from Leviticus and Isaiah, and by the way, can you do that? Is because he had studied extensively Leviticus and Isaiah. That he would wake up early in the mornings and retreat and pray. And he would study the word so that he could go and he could teach and he could preach. Now maybe you would think, well, didn't he have like super strength? Didn't he have like super energy? No, he was fully a man. And he got tired the same way that we get tired. 
Just as we saw in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is tired from ministry and he lays down in the boat and goes to sleep and is sleeping so soundly that the waves crashing in on top of him don't even wake him up. Jesus got tired. But every day Jesus woke up early and Jesus went and he healed people and he preached the gospel and he taught the gospel and he walked and he walked and he walked. Jesus is the standard of Christian work ethic. The apostles followed this. Paul talks about laboring and toiling. Throughout church history, we see examples of this. Spurgeon would spend 18 hours a day working and at the same time caring for an ailing wife. Jonathan Edwards would work 13 hours, take care of a farm, and minister to his congregation. Richard Baxter went house to house to house to every member of his congregation to make sure the fathers were catechizing their children. Lottie Moon starved herself to death. We can go on and on and on. David Brainerd preached until he fell over with tuberculosis. Anybody that takes seriously the work of Jesus, anybody who carries heavily the burden of Jesus, anybody who owns themselves the mission of Jesus will be a tireless worker as the standard that Jesus has set. So when we get to verse 37, and he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You need to understand what he means by laboring. You need to understand what he means by being a laborer. Here's what I believe he is saying to his disciples. Man, I told you I was going to make you fishers of men, remember? I told you when you came after me that we were going to go and we were going to fish for men and they were going to come with us. This is what it means. I am the example. Follow after me. As I go from town to town to town, from city to city to city, you will go from town to town to town and city to city to city. As I go and in the name of God raise people from the dead, so will you. As I go to people that don't want me there, you will go to towns like that. As I work, you will work. I am the standard that you are following in the completion of this mission. See, there's something remarkably Christian about being tired. We're terrified of being tired now. We're terrified of being tired in the church. You Google, how many, Google burnout in the church and see how many blogs po pop up. Brothers and sisters, we're a long way from that edge most of the time. I see a lot more rust out in the church than I see burnout in the church. People who want lives of leisure rather than lives of gospel urgency. You'd say this morning, but you do, I just got too much going on. I want to do more. I want to be more faithful in the church. I want to come to church more often. I want to serve more frequently. I want to go on mission. I want to go to Africa. I want to go to Utah. I want to, to go and do all of these missions. I want to go in the detention centers and do all of these things, but I'm just too busy. Well, Every study says that I've read that we are the busiest generation in history. Bloomberg Business says we are the busiest generation in history. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are largely busy doing nothing. Did you know that Bloomberg Business said that the average American spends 40 minutes a day on Facebook? 39 minutes a day caring for their pet. And five hours a day watching television. It's no wonder we're so worldly. 
It's no wonder that we look so little like Jesus. We say that we are busy, but we are busy doing nothing, accomplishing nothing that will bring no earthly good. Did you know that if you just watch TV half of the average, two and a half hours, and you come to church one time a week, and that is the extent to which you fulfill your Christian responsibilities, and you, you hear of the word of God, that you have a ratio of 17 and a half hours to one hour. Did you know that you can read the Bible in a year in about 20 minutes a day? But we're too busy for that. Did you know you can read the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, in about an hour a day in 90 days? We've got too many shows to watch. Too many practices to catch. Meanwhile, our children are going to hell. And our neighbors are going to hell. And our co-workers are going to hell. And our friends are going to hell. Brothers and sisters, we need to resolve to be tired Christians. Tired Christians. Forever we will rest. Forever we will rest. Forever we will experience the, the reward of God, the inheritance of God, the loving kindness of God. Forever. We got forever. Right now we work. Right now we follow after the standard of Jesus and we push ourselves to the edge and we work for the gospel and we go for the gospel and we do for the gospel. Because lostness bothers us and we have owned ourselves the mission of Jesus and taken the burden of Jesus to make it our own burden. So make some space in your life for Christian work. Free up your calendar some way, somehow. If you want to bad enough, you will. You can. There, you, we have the same amount of time in our day as Lottie Moon did. And Billy Graham did. And Jonathan Edwards did. And Martin Luther did. And Spurgeon and Whitfield. And we can go on and on and on. We have the same amount of time in our day as Jesus did. As the Apostle Paul did. And yet our impact is so much less. And then you factor into that that we can get to Africa faster than Jesus could get to Jerusalem. We can go 3,000 miles with less work and easier and faster than Jesus could walk 70. We have no excuse. And the truth is, is that the ministries of Iron City Baptist Church stands on the shoulders of a few faithful laborers. The missions of Iron City Baptist Church is standing on the shoulders of a few faithful laborers. Think of men like Tony. Teaches Sunday school. Leads a discipleship group. Has a ministry as a deacon. Has been a part of John's ordination council meeting once a month. Six o'clock in the morning at Cracker Barrel. Comes to all the church work days. And is a football coach. I think about our angel ministry ladies who come and work an 8 to 10 hour day every single Monday sewing thanklessly for people that will never really even know their names. For people that go to camps and cook and have done cooked and cooked and cooked for decades now. I think of people like Tracy Rouse who, who works and leads a, runs a business and leads kids praise every other month and, and goes on mission trips and uh, helps us lead kids camp so that children might hear the gospel. Melissa leads D group and teaches class and leads children every Wednesday night while working as a teacher. 
I could go on and on and on, but brothers and sisters, there are some laborers among us, but let us all stand up and be laborers because God will never bless a lazy church. If we are going to impact this world, if we are going to live an imprint of the gospel on Calhoun County, we must stand up and join the ranks and enter into the battle ourselves. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This morning, will you be a laborer? As you've heard that, maybe that sits heavily on you. It should. These are heavy words. This is a heavy burden. This is what Matthew is intending is for it to sit heavily on us. And so you would wonder, but, but how will I have the stamina to endure? How will I deal with all of the difficulties? I've been in there before, and it beat me down, and now I'm out. I've been in there before, and I was overrun, and I became discouraged, and so I pulled back, and and I'm afraid to get back in. The first question I would ask you is, is do you have more joy now that you're doing nothing than you did when you were serving and tithing? Typically, we think pulling back is the answer, but that doesn't fix it. It only makes it worse, and we end up feeling distant to the church and distant to Christ himself. But I think there's good news for us in the text. In verse 38, I think we get two life-giving principles here. Verse 38, he says, therefore, okay, because, in other words, because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, therefore, as a result, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think from that we get two life-giving truths. Two truths that will help us in our stamina, that will help us persevere, that will help us endure as we live a tired Christian life. He's saying, first of all, that we are responsible to go, but God is sovereign over the harvest. Right? We see that he's telling us we should even pray. We should pray, God, would you raise up laborers? I've prayed that this week. God, from Iron City, would you raise up evangelists? God, from Iron City, would you raise up nursery workers and children's workers? God, would you raise up missionaries? Would you raise up preachers and teachers? God, would you raise them up? And he says we should pray to him. Why? We should pray to him because he is sovereign over the harvest anyway. He is the Lord of the harvest. And it is his harvest. He says it twice. Now here's where I think it's good news for us. This is where I think we can find life, where we can find stamina, where we can find endurance. Is that it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on us. You see, a lot of theologians believe that when you start talking about the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, if you have a high view of the sovereignty of God, then somehow that diminishes the urgency of evangelism. But I'm here to tell you that the only way that you can persevere in evangelism is to have a high view of the sovereignty of God. That in evangelism, we see the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God in harmonized. Here's what I mean. Because we believe that every single person that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, we go. And we go, and we go, and we go, and we are relentless in our going. And we go here, and we go there, and we go across the ocean, and we go to Mexico, and we go to Canada, and we just go. And we go, and we go. We go across the street to our neighbor, and to our classmate on the team, and we go everywhere, to our own dinner table. We go. But what do we do with the disappointment? What do we do with the fact that we are rejected more than we are embraced? 
What do we do when we are excluded more than we are included? What do we do when it, when it causes people to look down on us or think lesser of us? How in the world can we deal with all of the failure? The sovereignty of God. It is in His hands that we trust. He is sufficient to save. He is mighty to save. He is sovereign to save. And so we go and we go and we go because it is our responsibility to go to call men to salvation in Christ and we persevere in our going knowing that God will bring the harvest as God sees fit to bring the harvest. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 2. He says, we, we just plant the seed. We can't make it grow. So here's, here's what I want to set, how I want to set you free. One day you're going to stand before Jesus. You're going to stand before his judgment seat and you're going to give an account of your life. You will never, ever, ever be held accountable for how many people were saved because of you. You will never give an account for how many people you brought to Jesus. You will give an account for how many people you took Jesus to. You will give an account for how faithfully you sowed the seed of the gospel. You will give an account for whether or not you were faithful in proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the truth. You will give an account for that. And so we can go and we know that not everybody will hear. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We go and we know that some will reject us and yet we persevere in our going because of the sovereignty of God. We go and we go and we go because we, it is our responsibility to go and we trust in his sovereignty to bring his people to himself. So we can persevere in our going because we understand that God is the Lord of the harvest. That it is his harvest. The second life-giving truth is that the harvest is plentiful but not necessarily immediate. The harvest is plentiful, but it will come in God's timing and in God's way because God is sovereign over the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. See, we get beat down sometimes, and some of us have quit because we felt like we were studying and studying and studying to teach, and nobody was paying attention that it wasn't having any impact, any impact that we could measure. Some of our teachers probably feel like that right now. We work with teenagers, and we work with teenagers, and we work with teenagers, and we just couldn't see any kind of breakthrough. And so we just backed off because apparently we weren't effective in what we were doing. But did you know that William Carey, the father of modern missions, labored for seven and a half years in India before he had his first convert? Did you know that Jim Elliott was going to reach a hostile group of, South America, of a South American tribe and was killed before there was ever one convert? But then his wife and other mission team, and now in the tribes experienced revival? Brothers and sisters, listen to me. We aren't just working for right now. We aren't just working for right now. Galatians 6, 9 says that at the proper time, we will reap what we have sown. That at the proper time, God will take the seed that we have planted in the ground and he will water it and he will cultivate it and he will raise it from the ground. And it may not even be in our lifetime. And so, But now we can sow and we can sow and we can sow knowing that at the proper time, in the right moment, that God, the Lord of the harvest, will bring the plant from the earth. That we will experience the harvest. Maybe it's a generation after us. Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our grandchildren. But every time we sow the gospel, we never sow it in vain. And so this morning we can work. We don't have to be discouraged about results. We don't have to worry about the things that we can count or the things that we can't count. 
We don't have to worry about what the number is. We don't have to worry about the, the particulars of all of that. We entrust those things into the sovereign hands of God. Instead, what we worry about is our responsibility to go. This morning, I ask you one more time. Does lostness bother you? Does lostness bother you? Some of you are lost. And this morning, the Spirit has been convicting and the Spirit has been drawing. This morning, don't harden your heart again. Turn and run after. Stop outrunning the pursuit of God. Turn and run to Him and know grace and know the riches of His mercy. Know the kindness of His Spirit. Come this morning. Aaron will be here and I'll be here. Come talk to us this morning. Some of you are Christians that have withdrawn You've lost the urgency of the gospel. You've lost the urgency of the mission. And you've been beaten down and you've been exhausted. This morning, I invite you to come and repent and pray and seek the life-giving truth of God's sovereignty and entrust those things to him and commit and resolve yourself to work. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, forgive me for how often I am not a laborer but a hobbyist. Forgive me for how often, Lord, I make the Christian life something that I do in my spare time, something that I do even at my work time, but not permeating throughout all of my life. God, forgive me for that. Forgive me, God, for all the excuses and all of the complaints of my own tiredness and my own weakness. 